Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia.
you write it in your Twitter timeframe or if you will come in to speak with your rules like we can't shoot holes where you can't build or whatever and write it with um, kind of like the concept of like an artistic vision like what do I want to build and then you're just kind of sending off and I think that's what Kevin did with um, like a green lawn and then build kind of an architecture and like kind of design the building and then it's all going to fit and really every time you make move clothes and things and things that's like a workplace
of different sizes. So I thought I'd take that down, but I didn't get the full focus and start to look at actually what's happening from that top left. And then in a hush that followed my discussion, a, a glossary of marks that had really hit me the day. I stopped back to contemplate it by getting kids to really think about the glossary of marks, the brow brush, the bully lighter brush, the, pa the dapper brush that's been saturated with paper that's been dapped up with canvas that's been saturated with the end of the brush and pulled out the end of the brush. No, that's it all. A piece of card, three to five word glosses, printing the paper onto the glass, being so embossed, and your students will find a way of creating that glossary of marks for you if you work with them. Now, Gloria spoke about the idea of getting, and there's something that Rhoda said last night in her talk, and it's a description of what I think is so key. It's what they work at. And what they work at is actually the sound of the jiggling switch in ceremony when it's not handed and it's put to the participant to give you attention. But that percussive, metronome metronomic sound of the beat, that is called what they work at. When Rhoda is painting well and everything is going well, her eyes, from her very eyes, from her community, are on the finished product. So what they work at is when it's all coming together. So that working that you see here comes from a few places at once. So let's not think about the ubiquitous stuff. Let's be specific in the language we use. So firstly, the working comes from marks on the body. So there's the marks on the front and the back. Marks on the, on the body on the brow and marks on the side. That's the percussion. Last night, Rhoda described this as being a rock sound. I think her Gloria came up with those conditions right in the making. They, take, they were absolutely the same. In fact, there will be people in that room afterwards. You know what we're doing, Kevin. Came up afterwards and said, you have to save it. You have to save it. It's like it's not going anywhere. It's going to be there. It's going to be there under the next layer of paint. So you're going to walk into this gallery next month and Rhoda's paintings still going to be there, but it's going to be under the next layer of paint. Now, how does Rhoda feel about her work being painted over, her brush being painted over? Absolutely fine because she describes this as being like paper, like the important rocks that pop out from her hand where it's an iterative process where the work is constantly layered on layered. But when I think about that question again, I think I would encourage students to come back to the same surface again when working with Rhoda Gillis to talk about her paintings. Some of the stuff that Rhoda has done is spectacular. There's the link kids to keep on going. Who does that actually? They keep working, keep on going, and, and using that iterative process is a great way to paint over. So keep layering it. So the Waka Waka becomes more than visual arts. It becomes hymns. It becomes ceremony. It becomes music. It becomes dance. It becomes ritual in a way. Sometimes they're painted in reverse. But you know, Rhoda talked about that and we've got some more pictures on this already. I'm gonna keep putting. I mean I'm looking at you and watching here. Good, very good. But I think there's something different also about when you're you're painting on the canvas and Lisa talked about hanging on the ground, on the body, with the paint on the wall. So again, a different way of making the mark a different kind of bodily position in that way. So you talk how she was physically tired because it's very different from when you're trying to theorize, but also just thinking about what the value would be in that the change is going to play more a practical role. And it's, and it's deep elements of language, but it's 
thinking about it is this idea of the storytelling. I say this to all of our We've got to do a lot of work with this building. And one of the things that keep being rejected to us, and there's a long history, it's called Mufa Binamu. Mufa Binamu is the idea of going on the ground to tell a story. Very, very powerful. Anthropology has been profoundly dismissed for, for some time as treating storytelling games. But of course, artists like Dalda and other people tell us that it's an ongoing way of communicating and telling a story. So this is Mufa Dinamu for the Art Gallery South Australia. And the message on the wall here, and I want to share with you my um, emoji, called my emerging bingo, actually says, come on in, everybody. Come on in. Come on in and listen, willingly. Come on in and listen. You have now reached the land or the place of my grandparents, my auntie, my grandmother, my great-great-grandmother. Come on in and welcome Welcome, welcome. Truly, come on in and take up the collective welcome. So, Dalda, come on in. I would like for you to take up the collective welcome as we look at this beautiful space. And just, what are you thinking? What are you thinking and doing? What are, what are you thinking and doing in the space? And you can uh, come on in and join the welcome. Beautiful. I have an art career I have been looking at for two decades now. It's where we use our passions, what we're passionate about, and what we're good at, and it's a space that we can use to make a difference in our community. Because that is what we are here to celebrate. Yes. That's beautiful. And storytelling. I, I talk about the Olympics and sport a lot when I think about art. You get good at sport by practicing all the time. We have two courses about that practicing and that physicality. Take the same approach. Approach to art making, and when you come into the art room, you rather want to leave the room where there's young art. You know, for like the limbo art, right? You put like you want to, you want to, you know, um, or you might be, you know, have a shared site for that art making, or they might use art as a site for somebody else's art making. Um, one of the really interesting things for us is that you know we have to, well, we want to decolonize this whopping big building and make people feel like they are reminding them that art can take them anywhere they step in. And we work very closely with artists to help us do that. And in this instance, as Nikki's already said, um, they were playing in storytelling on those driveway at possible means, yeah? So it's a long way from home, but she is extending the welcome in a sense by saying, you know, this is about my grandmother's country and you are welcome. To the next room. Your partner in Dharma Company, Big Mirabaka is a reminder that we are not one company and it is a reason of division um, for the gallery. It is a pre contact, pre invasion um, kind of word. And Mirabaka is a fear that we need from the inner bark of a rhythmic volcano. When you get up really close to it, I want you to have a recognition and a kind of honor. There are these deep incisions and you can still see the natural pigment um, retained within the marks. These marks are specific to um, the sort of southeastern um, side of Australia and Eora Mountains. You sort of get on an inside um, sort of linear um, oval-esque kind of way. 
and also just very long and abstract as well. You'll notice there's a hand over that sphere on top, and it's been placed into the field when the bank was probably insolvent and malleable. And I would say that sort of covers the ground. This um, Miller Barker is one of seven known asteroids that in our solar system. And very frequently, we know the story, a number of helpful objects um, were either taken, stolen, um, or destroyed. And there is a similar Miller Barker in the British Museum's collection. So the gallery is committed to having this um, Miller Barker on permanent display as a reminder that we're all in dinosaurism, but also to everyone to be able to, um, it's a dream to be part of it, to engage in the conversation. We recognize that it, this is one of seven that are known historically. Thank you. 
is that you know sort of environmental concerns you know the, the depletion of those plants as well um, due to I think the kelp you know and the sort of impact that will you know climate change and everything so thinking about a part from another one concerning the sustainable environmental sustainability and connecting environmental to plants that are on as well wondered what this article was about, so I'll start. <laughs> so we get to we get to bus two minutes for Jolly Bird Museum, and I and I don't want to be dismissive. All I'm happy about is to miss that bus. The first is the, the myth that Aboriginal people don't get permission to speak with them, that Aboriginal rights work in a particular way only for police. You know, talk about kissing the top end of the beautiful flower and central Australia is using police. The second myth is the myth of the extension of Coles Tasmania to Richmond Crossing. Now, not to say that Coles is the twist and the back track to the iconic Tasmanian Crossing project in Hobart. It is about um, what is the, the signifier of the centre of that story. So two minutes to talk about particular work. And for us, the work about you know, particular response to the exorcism on the right-hand side, there's the Kenyan Vagrant. Now, the Kenyan Vagrant in, includes Coles. So how many Aboriginal women <coughs> you know, were and are in this room? Essentially, it is the reputation of women. By the time it got into the history books, most of the women in the Kenyan Vagrant were dead. They'd been pushed out, flooded out of the underground tunnels and whatnot. By the time we made this film, we were creating and were holographic smoothing of the creek for Brian Brown, the masters who was creating this vision for the Tasmanian Tunnel audience. So these are challenging, horrific representations of Kenyan people. We may not have um, the human remains, for instance, but have the legal and continuing to the legal and connection history as well attached to the Kenyan story. But let me tell you, we've got paintings like this that tell the history of violence and the history of genocide. So we have work to do. And so this particular work, when Gary made these uh, printable figures, he was printing after the work had transcribed. He transcribed it directly word for word so that people can see what was happening. And then what uh, Gary does is kind of re-engage that audience, revisit it in its entirety. And then we have this representation. So Lola is helping us deal with this ourselves. Um, I want to bring you over to Sam because I want to talk a little bit about what's going on when we talk about this panoply of archiving opportunities. I'm conscious that you haven't asked a question and said anything for a while as well. So come this way and think of something that you might want to ask at this particular point in time. I think I made up the word beleaguer as well. I don't think it's a word. Is it Sam? But you know what I mean. So this is interesting. These are with the exception of a painting by Albert Nadia that came into the collection in 1979, these are the first works of Aboriginal artists that went to the collection of the Archival Centre. They came here in 1938. Paintings went into and sculptures went into collections across the country at that particular time. And it was on the back of the Australian Aboriginal Exhibition in Ardwight in Monrovia in 1938. Essentially, it's a two-week exhibition. But one where there was a particular a couple of individuals who were really very keen on um, aggrandizing or thinking about art space. But what so fascinating about this one is that this proves that there is a glossary and economy of mark making that, in a sense, are shared across the 
particular content, but also across the career. So the particular type of experience that I get with my clients and what I do with the clients is now costing me because a person's just paying for my time. So if you can think about what can I use those skills to help build some value, not learning everything about that topic. As I mentioned before, there are some people who might say, well, I started in marketing. But if you have a little look here, you'll notice that there is some dot painting here, there's some dot painting here, there's some dot painting most definitely into here, dot painting here and dot painting here. So these artists are conjuring their own mark marking, their own lexicons of mark marking to represent their work. Now, the word in particular is the word red eyes in the case of these paintings here. We know that because of the black background, which is the number one point of particular eyes, which is mind to this rose eyes. Interestingly, the ethnologists took up the fact that every eye sees eye. So that painting is a very, um, is a, is a focused painting because you have the background and see the what's going on in the painting for many years. So this bust was taken into Brazil with its kind of background in itself. And then the artist has painted their particular topic, their particular words, their particular cosmologies, particularly in this case the Australian Chinese. We've got the West Wind, that's called Bada. And on this side here, we've got the White Line Pleiades, a story that's actually shared with someone like Rhoda through the story that Kumbaya brought to the Seven Sisters. So the mark making, the, mark, the mark making is happening here as well. Let's do the same thing every day. I'm not going to ask you to ink it necessarily this time, but come across these words and just plot the mark marking. Plot the lexicon. Think about what's going on. Think about how the artist is working. And just in terms of technologies, it's worth pointing out something that I think we take for granted. The black here is actually a salt that's pulled out. In Central Ireland, in Donegal language, it's called a manya, but it, has, it carries many, many names of these minor ones. So we're not talking about the brush that Rhoda would use, which is, she uses the Western brush for her sisters. We're talking about a brush that's been created by taking apart from what this Chinese called Lanku that we learned, taking apart from from the salt and using it to apply the ochre. Now the ochre is of course mined from country. The yellow ochre is burnt to make the red ochre, and the white ochre is usually highly kind of sacred. And as as I said before, the black in this case is mined in Brazil. I think it's also in charcoal. Fascinatingly, orchid salt is used in these works to seal the mark marking off. So if I were to run my hand across these works, my hand appears to be, I would not pull out because all three major works, they're, they're like charcoal. You run your finger along the surface and you've got a, you've got the material on your hand. That's not the case here. I had to seal this orchid up. These days people use some practical things like PVA and other, other sealants. But certainly at this particular time, mid-last century, our materials are focused on PVA. Okay, compassion brush once more. So I know we've been talking about the idea of different Using A, this type of mark is best made using A, 
there's no book genre in the Wonderful Life. So I'm kind of circling, but I think if you're coming to visit us, I would really encourage you to check it out even more than coming here. And this brings us to what I feel like um, some really good music to play. I just want to mention the Aboriginal Memorial because it's kind of marking now this impounder last district in Australia. And I was there for the relaunch of the Aboriginal Memorial. And I think it's when you could look at in the classroom in this context of looking at history and assessing 200 years. If you don't already know it, they are the 200 hollow loaf coffins that were commissioned. Uh, they were first of all shown at Pier 2 and 3 in Sydney, and then they went to the National Gallery of Australia, and then director James Morrison uh, invited the artists and makers to come in and install these 200 hollow loaf coffins, painted, and they've got quite a monument. The Wells Fargo project is Van Ginning, but they're making a coffin monument. They were moved on Wednesday, I think it was there, Tuesday, Wednesday, Wednesday. They were relocated on Wednesday to the heart of the National Gallery in Australia at a major smoking ceremony. You'll read things about it, you'll get to talk about it. First launched in 1988, the Bunsen family, 200, 300 years of invasion. Really interesting project that looks at history. The National Gallery of Australia described it as their most important painting yet. So I, I, I thought of it just then because I was describing this as one of their most iconic. See the shift, the moment we're in right now? When this artist realised that these national pictures start to become denationalised or renationalised and start to take on different identities. Then now, if you know the NGO, you'll know that massive gallery that's right in the centre, which is where Bruce Olds was most iconically displayed, they're right there. It's actually where they were in the war. So they've been brought back to that spot. That's how big it is. But you now cannot, unfortunately, with the, the renovation of the whole police house, you could avoid walking through it. In fact, I think you had to be enhanced to your foot in some ways. They were kind of, they just kind of fall out right. They are now placed right in the middle and you walk through them. Yeah, you could describe today as the world of Australia. So 
it's got some clear particular anointed in the home experience in the viewer. If you haven't had a chance to see it, do go and see it. It's today. It's just the two two days to actually convey and experience in one day. But it is a good day to actually transformation, get plants in a new day. And Ellen, that particular community profile, that doesn't that doesn't give away the whole message because it's just a great community. Because what is important is that you know that you have other practitioners that you're seeing of marketing techniques and ideas, and that's where we're going to go. And if you ever have difficulty, I it's the best advice I can give you is just to reach out to me. Talk to people specifically about particular things, and you'll feel like you're saying yes, and it's going to be worth it for them as well. So we we entered the get planting hub like that we start to start off i've been talking generally about the fact is that the center is the one that actually gets planting and i think we finally kind of demonstrated in these days and what i mean is we have this amazing space this is going to display this wall and various shifts and actions taken by working people in the paper basically working people are working with but otherwise this wall has actually been actually removed
it's really interesting is that we're also defining the way that Adidas pays attention. So we've got the Western Pictorial way of perhaps communicating painting, but then we've got him communicating his ancestral ties to the Yolkan Ashford, which was the butcher store that was sold his his mother and mother's side. And it ties ties out as well. And so it ties in really beautifully also to what was happening in Papania, um, which you might be familiar with um, Papania. You start to see these ovoid shapes that appear. And we know that Adidas had connections to some of the artists working in Papania related to them. Um, and where did I go with that? I'm sorry, I just had a mental block because lots of things. Done some work with elbows, and with bleeding from. 
concrete just to make sure that I have another brick in the square to pile quick on top of the, the touches of sacrifice and sacred in the square that to pile on top. So what starts to happen from commencing year one is that we increasingly see brickwork as a method of confusion, as a way of revealing our concern in our space. Does that make sense? I think you saw it beautifully in the gym where I think you've got a perfect example because things are starting to emerge through that we're also discerning recognise the fact it's there and it's there to concern us. The work that my nephew works does speak to that, but you know, this is a it's like a pictogram. It's a hypergraphic analysis. It's one of my favourite examples because you feel kind of behaved in the circus of shapes. They've not been there since Pompeii. They were made with Mediterranean shapes because the painters then went on to build what was part of what became the schoolroom. So the art school worked in directly on that and Pompeii and they would have been two holes for electrical cables, for instance, and it's further on than that. But I think this is seeing the three, which is why we do it everywhere with all the hyperbolic terrain that it is, that you get this story of this transition, this, this so-called Western idea of these landscapes. I say so-called Western because we know that landscapes which resemble some contemporary things are calling it country. Conte- at the same time, contemporaneously working in this so-called Western style in the case of Ireland, and then you've got this moment, this wellspring of Campania where many of them, although many of them are aided by their wives, so there's a sense of balance, where painting their country, but the way they do that changes and transforms. Revelation can form a pivotal link for me in this upcoming year to the work I'm about to do, because I teach every year in May, but you could think about the idea of a wine country after every event in the upcoming year. I love drawing these things as my classroom. I've got a thing for antique and Buckley has a desert palette, but it's really hard to use the Buckley desert palettes in the classroom for a whole of an hours. But painters are really great for desert, and many of you would know that the antique desert is amazing. But painters are great for everything that's in that zone, because then you can reveal it in that way. You can capture the architecture of the irrigated, but you can also pick up the water diluted fluid that impacts it as the space is revealed. Well, I don't know why I'm coming back to water, but I'm coming back. I'm about water. And then the lovely thing about drawing water, I think people are liberated when they can't see them in the classroom. And if you draw with a white candle on a white piece of paper, you actually can't see them unless it will make them particularly wet. It's quite liberating for students. And then you get to reveal it reveal it and you can, you can see it in the eye of the audience. I want to talk, and this is a bit impromptu, I don't have a script here, but these figurines have just come onto the wall, so I feel like I just want to turn you around. We've stepped into this kind of niche of work by an artist doing this very little introduction in the, in the western part of Australia. And I think the proximity of these works, I, I love this, the ground picking up idea that the Australian art story is not a monocultural one and that it is a story that spans across many cultures. Now, interestingly, even just over here, we've got we've got two works of Emily Cameron Lyle's paper, Ireland, that we can't even see because they're too refined over here. It's really not too apt. So they fit pretty handy, don't you, Emily? They're alongside a work 
which is terribly about plantation aid by Tony Jackson. So this is to get an end to that. This is also about this idea of who gets to make this movement here and what are the influences. Tony Jackson was in my job when I was with him back as the deputy director. And he, on the side, made art. What he was doing was collecting Aboriginal art, along with some benefactors. He was collecting Aboriginal art for the Arts Aboriginal Students Alliance because he firmly believed that it belonged in the Australian Art and Museum. But at the same time, he was drawing Aboriginal art to life. Alongside him, as I said, is Emily Pike, who painted for the nurse. It was Emily, Emily and Fred Williams had a kind of love affair with each other in a sense. Emily was very fond of Fred Williams' work and she saw it for the first time going up and down in Australia. And likewise, there was not so much connection as he didn't, Fred Williams died before he could see Emily's work, but he was very interested in ideas of Aboriginal art. So you've got these kind of exchanges of ways of thinking and being that are happening. I'm not suggesting that Fred Williams was appropriating Aboriginal art in the way that someone might um, get questioning. He wasn't an artist, was he? It's a bit weird what's going on over here, isn't it? But certainly, if you just think about these topographic renderings, this way of trying to come together with the vast and the potential through the act of might mapmaking, rather, you'll see some proximity here. Dr. Bourne might have seen it as well, with the sort of topic, like, you know, the different kind of vantage points or perspectives. Same old complaints. Let's, let's go, we're going to go down into the binary now. As you do, though, I mean, I'd love you to look over here on the left-hand side at the posters that we were talking about. One's got Aboriginal flags and one's got Aboriginal landscapes. Interesting in itself, right? So if you want to break these myths of, you know, talking about Aboriginal art and mapmaking, I think it's great to talk about the, the woman who's in the 1970s was kind of making Aboriginal art. Now, by today's standards, completely kind of intellectual perfection. By the standards of the 1970s, she was attempting to replicate some of the kind of traditional European and certainly British ideas of, of the natural connection and potential of being native, she wanted to be native. And she saw that being Australian and the only way she could be native was to make references to Turkey and Iraq and Turkey and Iraq and very, very interested in talking a lot about and talking about these places and talking about the idea of Aboriginal art and Aboriginal culture here in those works in the 1970s, but nearly the whole time she made those references. In fact, they did forget she was trying to make appropriation of Preston's appropriation of traditional Aboriginal art and culture and kind of forgot. Sorry, I thought I had a little wind when I got to these and I thought, let's look at this one. You can't not, can you? That was your fault, but you get the point. <laughs> what is it? Imagine you're, you're a student for a minute. Aboriginal landscape over here, Aboriginal flowers up here. Which question up to? This is Dick Watson's work about Zola. La-di-la-di-la. What's, what's she up to? What's the question up to? What's she doing? She's using a colour. So she's reduced her palette to Tony palette, which is an all-colour palette, or an ochre palette, if you like. But she's not using ochre still today, but she's certainly imitating the ideas. What else is she doing? Yeah, you got it. She's flattening that picture point. And in fact, she's using dark outlines in a lot of, in many cases to create that flattening. Even a frame, Preston made her own frame selected her own frame and said, you can use your own frame. The frame to me in this kind of extended picture frame makes it feel a bit like a bath painting. Can you see that? It's like she's painting onto the timber itself. 
So it's such a fascinating figure. As I said, by today's standards, kind of controversial in that background, and then yet she occupies this really, I think, an important position in allowing us to think about ourselves and our identity, particularly in the 20th century. This work up here is one of my absolute faves because this was painted long before the Aboriginal flag was invented, and yet I can't get hot to the Aboriginal flag in the colours that are rendered. As I mentioned, it's called Aboriginal flags in the sense that not because the scene is Aboriginal, and you could argue that it has some references, but because the flowers themselves are Aboriginal feather flowers. And Gloria's going to put some on display in the space very, very soon, because we've got some in the collection. And feather flowers, this will be interesting for perhaps the poster students, feather flowers are made today, and they're made all across the country. They're made in the top end most prolifically at this point in time. But feather flowers are made by Aboriginal artists where you collect particular feathers. Hellar feathers are really good, as you can imagine. Um, various parrot feathers to create bouquets of flowers. And that's what she has here. So this would have been, she was a, a kind of proud member of the Sydney Ecopological, I think it was a National Horticultural Society for many, many years. So she had quite a collection of Aboriginal art and artefacts and she was drawing upon them, so no doubt that's what she's done in this instance. Over here, and if we could just stay in one place with me, there's a lot going on here. We talked about the 48 works. When we're in Gallery 2 and we looked at that wall of works, the West Wind, uh, Catherine Parker, or the Kimberley, the Orion Palladium, we talked about Barks, and I told and shared and overshared perhaps the story that Margaret took Barks with him from one community, collected on the west and took them with him as his own, because it wasn't Barks' season. He also took time to what he learned in the garden. So he worked with the artists and gave the artists time in these works here. Um, this work here is an example of that. You can even see the water mark on the car. He was stirring the car as he was travelling, uh, and the water damage is, is very visible in this particular work. Um, this is a work which is about the Southern Cross, which is about the Milky Way. It has cosmological reference and also has quite a bit of depth and understanding in that work. Until fairly recently, these works on par were not seen much in art galleries, even though they've existed in art gallery collections since 1948. Can anyone tell me why? This one here, just in case you're wondering what I'm talking about, this one straight through here. Why not? Kind of dismissed as not being bark, so it wasn't authentic. It wasn't on canvas, so it wasn't contemporary. Yeah, there's judgments that we have around materials that we certainly um, suffered. Most these works suffered most definitely through that. James Kant's another artist to think about. We won't go into it today, but Kant and the Adelaide based artist was also deeply inspired by Aboriginal art, particularly white painting. Sorry, it's a whole other lecture. which is at the southern end. I was almost hoping that when we walk past Milton's work, we would evoke his um, work on temporary ways making marks in the ground. Yes, yes. But we didn't. You can, you can, a lot of you have seen that. Yeah. Maybe I can talk about that for a moment already. Oh, I'm not sure. Yeah, you can talk about that. 32 to 70. Oh, there we go. <laughs> 32, 32 to 70 audience. We've had a previous, a previous encounter with the Adelaide Biennial. Yeah. And that mark, 
listen to. It comes from Canada, but the resources are also in Gaelic, so you can hear more about these particular figures, their spirit figures as they muffled their spirits on that site. And it's John Baptizer from the same community, different language groups, so it's the same community as Slane. We're going to finish Slane with these first poems because I know we're going to bang on, but we're going to go on to this next song that Kathleen really wants to play. Nikki's just going to go and check in on the sound because we just noticed that the video sounds different. But when she comes back, she'll have a chat with you about the, the work that you've just walked through, which is the work of the vanilla artist Dennis Golden, um, which will be a nice place to finish, actually. This is a, it's a bit of a sad room. My son passed away six weeks before we opened the exhibition, completely unexpectedly, so it is a sad, sad room. But I also think it's got to be a room of joy and redemption, and he was uh, very much inspired by Sufi poetry. So um, the work of my son and represents a kind of eternal return and the fact that there is no end game in all of us. For those of you on this side, come this way because I'd love you all to see, and Gloria's going to point it out for us, the dot painting that's in this room. I feel like we're breaking all the rules and someone pointing out something that is not something that we would recommend. That's why I think it's good to talk about these things. One of the reasons that Hossein's turning tree is upstairs, and we've just been up there with that turning tree, is because when we decided to rediscover that part of the collection, we were talking, and he reminded me that in 1973, when he first came to Australia, one of the first things he did was fly to Kenya. And I mentioned before, 1971, late 1971, some important kind of words for him. By 73, it was still in its early days with that, what was then seen as orange painting on the front. Hossein was born, actually. He was born in Shiraz. Australians are Shiraz still now. His first painting from when he was at school, he was in that world long ago. He was a teapot, which is Angela's first, um, one of Angela's first ceramic things. 1968, he finished, he was studying at the Shiraz School of Art, then he ends up 1974 in Papunya. And in Papunya, he has this reckoning that he wants to stay in Australia, but also that he is an honourable Khmer artist but that these Aboriginal artists that he's sitting with are making purely Australian art. So across Hossein's long practice, 40-plus practice now, I think it's been over 60, he um, returns time and time again to dot painting, which kind of tricks him into thinking about a kind of life. And this painting here on the wall is a very good example. He did a whole lot of dot paintings with his heart tags that He did, he created all of these kind of poetic figures that were all partly this idea of dot painting, all the while always cognizant that they were non-Aboriginal artists, that someone back in Iranian or Persian communities just couldn't make dot paintings in the way that the artists that he sat down with Peter Kane and Peter Martin and all these other people like the Black Atlanta could make. So that work sits there, it's a, an interesting kind of votive moment. Before um, Angela had designed this entire wall for Aboriginal artists, and because he is so incredibly organised, he kind of spent his death not in his Uganda mansion. That meant that we could just go ahead and restore this work and not pay tribute to him. The only work and his last work of art is the work that's swimming here, which had been made, of course, but had not been activated by movement. So um, we worked with Angela and her team to activate this work by movement, and it's 
started sitting in front of the bathroom mirror and like beauty always wanted to sit there. I was almost wanted to grab out the carton of fresh cake that she said she was decorating on the back of it because we probably all saw it because I think Dennis is a really good example of that, a young Aboriginal artist who was coming to grips with all of this, uh, all of this information that was out there. Did you get it? Yeah. Terrorist 
person requested his report. So he's been colorenogram. The word colorenogram means partial clearance. I feel like he's connecting with the flowers that you see in those Victorian, not Victorian, metal beds in those Victorian terraces. But he talks about this as Aboriginal architecture. Now, if you were to talk to these architects about the idea of this lattice work being Aboriginal architecture, they'd say that that was a pattern of an Icelandic concept. But what he's actually doing is appropriating and taking back the, the architecture that he grew up with, that he saw the world through as his weapon for action. It becomes his weapon and his tool for architecture. So for, for him on the block in Redfern, it is Aboriginal architecture. It was Aboriginal lattice drawing that he had um, worked on earlier as part of the experience of making Redfern home, as part of the experience of these five Gamilaroi families that he talks about who all moved together down to Redfern, displaced their country, who moved to Redfern. So it becomes country and makes it country. Now, if you think on it being a little bit potentially um, stretching the truth a little bit. There's evidence in there that I'm not. When you go back through, you can find it. There's a huge amount of walls which came within the colours of the Aboriginal flag. Same colours as Preston County. And it is a shield that references directly the architectural drawings of that year, of that of those balustrades. So they made a pillar balustrades. And he's used those to create a weapon and a shield. And therein lies the connection between the superhuman, the superhero writer, I'm a superhero, the superhero idea in the studio and Dan Hunt um, in that wedding in the Florida Farmer's House. I made Redfern as an American product once, back in Australia. How to take things from your architectural drawings. I think that we do that enough. I think we've got lots of other architects in our classrooms. How to take something from the architectural world, from the school, from the farm, etc and how to turn that into something that becomes part of your own weapon, a part of your own sense of purpose and personality could be really interesting. We have talked enough already. I'm going to hand over to Kylie. You guys have been amazing. It's been lovely to be with my colleagues. We don't get to do this as much as you might think, actually, with the way this work is done. So it's been um, really lovely to be working alongside and with you today. And, of course, Kylie, who I cannot